massaging kids with information means that they can learn it for a test, but then they don't remember it. Right. So it's, there's no use to that. Um, that said, it's also morally bad to force them to be in a situation where they're essentially made to memorize things, but not given context for why they should care about it, mm. what, what role it would play in, in, in their lives. Whereas when you change the perspective, the frame in which you present it to them, they're able to see, you know, so for instance, a lot of science classes, if they were framed from the standpoint of how can our community solve these problems rather than memorize these facts, they, they care about it. Kids are misrepresented frequently when they're presented as being kind of like addicts on their phones and not really caring about things. The mm. moment you, you allow them a chance to kind of weigh in on stuff that matters, they love it. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with uh, Dr. Stephen Miller. Dr. Stephen Miller teaches philosophy part-time at Marist College, and he also teaches at Oakwood Friends School. And today we're going to be talking about how do we do philosophy with uh, pre-college students. Uh, this is a topic near and dear to my heart as I homeschool uh, my four and six-year-old. Uh, Dr. Miller, Dr. Stephen Kakoa Miller. Yeah, I'm, not actually, I'm not actually a doctor. It's just, just Stephen. Oh, my fine. apologies. I yeah, thought I saw. Um, wonderful to have you today. Good to be okay. here. Uh, so talk to us a little bit. How did you get interested in this topic? Um, what, what was your path uh, into philosophy? And then from there into uh, the pedagogical side of it. So I, I was originally an international relations major in undergraduate. And then depending on my perspective or my parents' perspective, made the ter terrible choice of taking a philosophy class. And then from that moment on, it was all, I, I changed majors late in, late in college. And so it was like six or seven philosophy classes a term for the rest of the time out, and I just loved it. So then did, did graduate work in philosophy. Um, what I really was liked and what I found Kind of on the flip side, disheartening about a lot of graduate education in philosophy here is that really what at its heart philosophy is about, I, I really did a lot with the Greeks, especially how mm -hmm. to live well, the meaning of life, what a good life looks like, what kind of person to be. Um, and then a lot of graduate education is much more about, um, well, I mean, as an adult now, I see that there's a reason for it, but it's about careers and, um, yeah. and kind of a kind of the technical side of things, which is important. Mm. And I've come to appreciate that side of things. However, it misses often that, you know, Plato and Aristotle both talk about philosophy beginning in wonder. And, you know, I think a lot of the professionalization of philosophy has left that part out, um, which partly also then when I was in graduate school and then also, um, I've been teaching Marist for close to 20 years now. And both of those departments, pre-college philosophy and philosophy for children or with children, the different terms for it, were completely absent. I'd never mm. heard of it. Um, 
Um, yeah. And then I, I was doing a, I think it was seven years ago, maybe, doing a summer program with um, Tom Wartenberg, who's now um, an emeritus professor from um, Holyoke. And I was, I was working with him on existentialism. I got a National Endowment for Humanities grant to, to do that. And then he mentioned working with second graders. And I had a kid who was in second grade at the time. And it just blew my mind and then started to look into it. It turned out that I'd been teaching kids, like high school kids, philosophy for many years. Mm. But I had no idea that there was a movement of it. And I felt kind of sheepish that you know, other people were doing this and they had this expertise. And I... And so since then, it's been one of the main areas of my research. And um, shortly after that summer, I did um, using pic a lot of with when it's really young kids, they use picture books. And in yeah. particular, Frog and Toad is one of the most popular ones. So I did the went to my kids um, second grade class and we did Frog and Toad, the, the one about bravery, where they're chased by snakes and various things. And it was just amazing that. Um, then kind of related to that, from that point on, I started trying to push the philosophy education to younger and younger students yeah. at, at the Quaker um, high school and, and middle school that I, that I teach at. So I now do middle school philosophy class. Um, it's very much not, you know, like, let's see what Kant had to say on this. Right, but, right. But much more inspiring them. To um, actually, with middle schoolers, we um, a couple of years ago I was doing a, a frog and toad story again, the one on friendship, and the conversation afterwards just blew my mind that they they pretty much got to all the main points that Aristotle gets to in the Nicomachean Ethics. Mm. Um, and when I mentioned that to them, then they said, "Please bring some Aristotle in." And so the next week <laughs> we looked at Aristotle. And it's um, you start to realize that how short-changed children are by how we understand what they're capable of and what they're interested in. Um, and I, in, to a degree, I've come to think that you know, our kind of overall pedagogy in this country is exactly upside down, mm. in which we barrage them with details of information and only later, for most people, not until college, if then, do they get kind of a conceptual understanding of why the details might matter and kind of like how they relate to each other. Whereas letting, like I, I love in class, if a student were to say, you know, why should I care about this? Like, but those moments are erased generally for kids from class because the answer is usually, as you're mentioning, a test. Yeah. Yes, uh, because in a lot of ways, we don't equip teachers to answer that question. And for some teachers, it's even seen as a threatening question. It is. Yeah, they often see it as rude. I think that if you can't answer that question, then you shouldn't be teaching the material that day. Um, but, but I think even some of the most prosaic yeah. lessons do have, there's a reason for them. Right, and, right. And, and if the students know that, um, and if it fits into their sense of what matters and the problems in their community, the way Dewey would have us understand it, then mm. you don't have to... Do we call it strain when um, in a class when you when you're forced to kind of kind of lean on them to make them learn something? And he sees that as the opposite of what real education is about. Whereas if you frame things as being about the things that they already care about and the problems in their community, you don't have to work to get them interested. 
Mm. And I think I found right. with philosophy, you definitely don't have to work because the younger the kids are, the more that's where their minds are anyway. Um, they, they, they love those questions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one comment that I think uh, kind of ties in some of what you're talking about. Uh, you mentioned that this has been going American, this failure in American pedagogy has been going on for a while. And I mean, that might be part of why we have teachers struggling with it, right? Because those questions mm. weren't answered for them. And so then they're frustrated yeah. because they're like, why do you need this answered? I didn't get this answered. Um, and that's just, I mean, depressing, yeah. but <laughs> I, I could see well, the two points converging. <laughs> absolutely. The, um, one of the major organizations working on this in the country is called PLATO, which stands for the Philosophy, Learning, and Teaching Organization I'm on the, the board of. And um, one of the directions that we're looking to try and look at more now is teacher training, mm. because um, and part of this ties to some of the new things that teachers are asked to do with the Common Core, but not trained to do, um, which it asks them to do critical reasoning. Mm. But as you were telling your story about the um, AP test, most teachers don't really spend time learning it themselves in education school. Yeah. So it is the challenge, but it's not challenging, I've found, to get kids to start doing philosophical thinking and conversing. Uh, yeah. Oh, I mean, why questions are infamous in the three to four-year-old yeah. stage. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier, and this is a little bit further back, but it did intrigue me, and I think this might take us uh, kind of some of the main points you make even in... Um, your book, which by the way, that's how I found you was intentional disruption. Um, so if you can read that backwards, uh, whoever's watching this, uh, intentional disruption, <laughs> expanding access to philosophy, um, which you edited, it's a series of essays. Um, but you mentioned that as you got into graduate school, they emphasized the technical side of things over the wonder. Uh, yeah. can you explain a little bit what you mean by the technical side of things? Yeah, so um, and I think that's why when people first hear that there is even such a thing as philosophy with children, or that it sounds insane to them because most yeah. people's encounter with philosophy would have been with for most of them a single college class that they often found to be the hardest class they took in college. And it, you know, if you're trying to read Kant or Aristotle, <laughs> it is really hard, and that's part of yeah. philosophy, and it's an important part of it, but. Right. Um, it's not the reason that people initially want to go into it. They initially want to go into it because they're having these thoughts about the kind of questions that everyone cares about. You can't help but to care about, you know, how should I live? What's, what's a meaningful life look like? You know, what, what type of person should I be? How much do I owe to my neighbors? And these kinds of um, really key questions that then initially philosophy is intriguing because it addresses them. But the further up in philosophy you go, the more it starts to kind of be, um, there's a lot of jargon and technical aspects, again, which are important. Right. But, but in graduate school classes, you don't often have moments where you, you stop and say, wow, think about this idea. That's just such an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, which yeah. you need to have more of, I think. Well, I mean, and that's what keeps it uh, alive. And that's what uh, I, I had an interview with uh, Dr. Lee Braver from uh, USF uh, earlier. Um, 
uh, last year now. And uh, he talked about when he does philosophy, it's like eating fireworks while riding a roller coaster. But of course, to everyone else just watching, which I was like, that's a great description, kind of graphic, but uh, great description. And uh, it was interesting because he said, if you were watching me, all you'd see is me sitting there reading and going, hmm. Right. And it's yeah. not it's not uh, very exciting from the outside. But once you ignite that on the inside and once you understand the questions and the technical points, the technical points become valuable. Uh, yeah. something that I've noticed with my own conversations, you know, people be like, oh, you did philosophy. And then they'll ask me a question. And it's normally a really terrible way to phrase the question, right? Because asking questions well is a, one of the hardest things to do in philosophy. And it's really, I found it really easy for myself to brush them aside or immediately jump to things that would, I could tell, make their eyes glaze over. And yeah. uh, even as you, you're talking about it here and what works for children, in all honesty, works for adults, we're three or four steps away from a great conversation. And that's normally because there, there are these distinctions. Why did the children want to read Aristotle and they ended up enjoying reading Aristotle? Because you guided them to the point where they started to understand the distinctions he was making. And so a, a lot of what we're talking about with Aristotle and Kant seems to be this lack of context. We jump all the way to these distinctions and they don't understand why they're important yet. And yeah. by the time they do start to understand it, it's exactly what you're saying. It's flipped upside down. By the time they do understand the context, uh, they're, they're disinterested. Yeah, and I think in, often they've, they've turned off their interest to history, to science, to us. Mm. I mean, the example I like to give that I find is to be such a sad testament to how we approach things is that and um, when I do um, Asian religions and philosophies in classes, mm. I, I mention it to them. But the the picture of the world that your like modern chemistry gives is mind blowing, right? Yeah, it suggests that all of our senses are wrong; that the world's made up of small things that are empty space. But that's nothing to do with our actual sensory experience of the world. So it's. But in your average chemistry class, they spend no time whatsoever about how freaky that is. Whereas if, if you could really, like, you, you can use those kind of moments to get them to then care about mm. doing that, like, figuring out the math around, you know, atomic numbers and moles and various things like that. Um, or like the chapter one in the science textbooks that classes always skip because they're like, oh, we don't have time for chapter one. That's always the one that talks about how can we know Oof. about this? How have we come to the method that they got? And, and I get another thing that we... Like with science, mm. it tends to be this like march of triumph that you only look in a textbook at what they think is true now, but it has nothing to do with how real science is done. Science is all about false moves. Yes. And so th there's never any emphasis on the history of science, in which you see how at some points in the past, it was quite reasonable to believe things that now we think of are as unreasonable, but there were good reasons to believe them then. And then in doing that, it comes to hopefully cause us to have kind of an epistemic modesty to see like, mm. oh, the things that I believe now, there might be really good reasons in the future why people would think that it's ridiculous to believe that. And so to, to and, and the less certain we are in our beliefs, the more likely we are to be able to hear other people too, which we're, socially we've been pretty bad at lately, I think. 
And I love that you make that point because the opposite of epistemic uh, modesty would I be, I assume, epistemic arrogance. Yeah. And uh, when you skip the historical context and the whole trail of mistakes it took to get where we are today, you do get people looking into the past and saying, wow, they're just stupid. And I'm really smart because I know this. And it's yeah. like, <laughs> I mean, what, what, what would Aristotle or Galileo um, or a Ada Lovelace, you know, like th these people, what would they understand and be able to push us forward with if they were here today? Right. And it's just, uh, it's so, no, I think that's a, a great point. Um, it's, it's kind of analogous too, in how we view the past and how we view children. And mm. one of my favorite people in the field, um, Gary Matthews is a philosopher from um, UMass. Um, he was a specialist in ancient philosophy, but then was one of the real inventors of the new movement in the mid 20th century. Um, he made that that point of connecting them in, in that in the same way that we would see, you know, it's laughable now to look at Aristotle's science, for instance. But there are really good reasons why he believed that then. Yeah. We also then look at kids' ideas and see them as either being kind of from a patronizing sense of like, you know, oh how cute. Or Piaget's notion of children as, as being kind of deficit and development meant filling in where you had had you weren't as good at. But mm. Matthews's point was to say, in fact, um, it's not just that you can do philosophy with kids, but they're better at some things than we are because um, the more years you live, the more you come to know how things are, the worse you get at being able to think counterfactually and like to think about how things could be. And so he makes this wonderful suggestion about that's really informed how I think about things how important it is to have philosophical dialogues involving people of different ages mm. because um, it's, it's not that we develop and get better at things, but we have at different ages, we're able to do certain things better and we mm. lose some of those things. And so once I started thinking in those terms, then I, it actually made me a much better teacher as well to be able to really hear what my students were saying and it, and every now and then someone will say something and I'll say, wow, I never thought about that before. And you can see how powerful it is to them to be taken seriously with these important philosophical questions because their ideas are just as good. Yeah. And that Matthews's point, which I think is a, an important one, is that not only can you do philosophy with children, they can actually forward the field. They can raise mm -hmm. questions and bring things up that no one the adults in the field hadn't thought of and can actually progress can be made by having conversations with them. Yeah. It's really interesting. You bring that up. Um, uh, I did most of my work in philosophical hermeneutics and uh, mm -hmm. Hans Jörg Gadamer uh, like, writes a, a good, uh, a, like a pretty long section about Jean Battista Vico mm -hmm. uh, criticizing Descartes and probably the biggest criticism he had and I found this to be true and I didn't follow the intuition through to the end and I should have is that Descartes uh, the Cartesian method doesn't work for kids it doesn't yeah. because the idea of like building from little blocks up to where we need to be takes too long right it doesn't yeah. work for like kids need to be told ethical things right now and I've often found myself uh may 
working in philosophy from the point as a, uh, as a parent and being mm-hmm. like, well, would, if I talk this way to my kids, would this work? <laughs> yes. What I should have been saying is I should have actually talked to them, right? Instead of like armchairing it. And I think that's a really interesting point in terms of they, they don't have a lot of the same strictures we do, right? They are better at some things. Uh, what's your favorite example? Uh, I'm assuming you do this personally quite a bit, right? Yep. Uh, what are some of your favorite examples of what if thinking that caught you off guard? Um, a lot of when I do middle school philosophy, um, essentially we the sixth grade we we look at questions involving um, the self and the world. Seventh grade, it's more the social, political, and ethical. And then eighth grade, it's like personal identity kind of. Um, and I think where you often find the most really interesting jumps is is with the social and political philosophy that I think, um, and in some ways, it's you could see like someone like Socrates is almost like a child in how he positions himself in that what what children because they don't have the background they're not able to know oh these are the things that people have said for these various reasons they can think more creatively and often when it comes to questions of fairness will come up with insights that i would certainly never have thought of um mm. because as you as you learn more you conceptualize everything into the language that you've already that you've trained in yes and again and there's value in that but there's also value in having them be able to phrase things often very awkwardly, but that the point that they're making is can be stunning. I mean, when it comes to children in philosophy, it was, it must've been about six. One morning at the breakfast table, my younger son essentially came up with the cosmological proof just in talking about like, you know, how could the universe and it start and you know, the, how could yeah. it have had to start? And, um, when it works well is when I'm not prompting it. If I try prompting it at home, <laughs> I, get, I get eye rolls and like, you know, stop doing philosophy, dad. It's so, so cringe, you know, those kinds oh. of things. But yeah. Um, and, and then um, one time, he was probably about the same age, my older son, I was walking around on, on um, in this um, field with him and he looked up at a squirrel and he, and he said, you know, Dad, how come dogs all have names, but squirrels don't? And I realized that he was making like a really important conceptual distinction there hmm. about, you know, what counts as individuals, whereas some things are just part of categories and um, hmm. questions in the philosophy of language that it was phrased in a much more direct way, but yes. really, really important kinds of, um, kinds of questions. Besides the Frog and Toad series, which you've mentioned a couple of times, and who writes that? Arnold Lobel. Yeah, those are my favorites. Uh, I think you also mentioned pictures to start uh, conversations. Mm-hmm. Or are, are those picture books or those pictures? Those are picture books, books, yeah. Got you. So, um, yeah, so I, mean, I, I, have, I have some friends who have done this philosophy with children, with kids as, as early as pre-K. Yeah. Um, they're definitely using picture books, um, but <laughs> I would assume so. Yes, but the idea is that you can use anything to prompt the discussion, whether it be a picture book. It could be a um, 
my, my friend Tom Mortenberg put together a whole program of um, using paintings from an art museum at the, I think, mm. somewhere up near him in, in Massachusetts. Um, you can use clips from films or pieces of text. Um, but but that, the idea of the kind of the classic move with younger philosophers is to have the, the thing. Um, sometimes you can just have them generate questions and you don't need to prompt them at all. That, that's one popular way or to give them something to prompt them. And, and the, the term that is usually used is community of inquiry. And it's, there's a, when people who do pre-college philosophy are getting dogmatic, that's where they get dogmatic or sometimes arguing over exactly how it has to be done. And mm. I think it can be multiply realized. It can be looking lots of different ways, but the, yeah. the, the it's the term that um, Peirce used to describe scientific community, and then Dewey repurposed that term to say, actually, you know, at any real teaching, any real good classroom is going to be a community of inquiry. Mm. And the, um, the premise of it is that we, we, we inquire best when we're doing it together, that, that learning is a social thing, mm. that it's not, whereas a lot of the metaphors in the, our contemporary understanding of education, especially with the testing regime, view information and like le learning and knowledge as being akin to like a capitalist acquisition, like a thing that you possess, yeah. not a thing that we share. Um, and so I, it's a, as, as a method, um, it usually shares with it the sense that there isn't a set outcome that you're aiming for. Um, and so at the end of a session, you might not have, the, the, the paradox that my mentor and undergraduate gave me, which I like, is to say, at the end of the session, you might not be any closer to the, the truth or to the end, but you'll be further from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone will have felt this progress that's been made, yeah. but you're not at the end there. And, and often when I've had classes where it's most uncertain, or the term Plato would use is like perplexity, operia. That's when a, the students are most thankful. They're like, oh, that was great. Thank you so much. Mm. They, um, the, the sense that it's open and that the conversation can go in a number of ways. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, because it's something they even look forward to and they continue afterwards, right? That's yes. like, yeah. Um, have you ever come uh, into a lunchroom and heard them still discussing it? Very often. Yes. Or I, I frequently <laughs> run into their parents who will say that a philosophy class has become their, their main um, dinner table conversation piece where you know, whatever topic that we're talking about in philosophy class goes home. And, yeah. Um, which I love to hear. I was just about to say, yeah, that must bring you so much joy. That's got, as a teacher, that's got to be one of the best feelings. Largely because I think, um, and before COVID times, and mm. hopefully after COVID times again, I've been doing these um, evening philosophy sessions where I tried to get um, students, parents, teachers, board members, as many different people, especially different ages together, right. to talk about, you know, and we'd, it would be a theme, but I, it might start off on, you know, epistemology or philosophy of education, but who knows where it would end up going. And um, what I found often that would be so 
beautiful to see is that I think sometimes that in abstracting that philosophy gives often gave parents and their kids a chance to meet each other in a place where the emotions were able to not be, especially when you're a teenager, it's hard to talk mm. to your parents. But at the end of those sessions, often you felt like the, they had learned a lot about each other by what they had said in those sessions that they wouldn't have talked about without the kind of the, guess the formal structure of a community of inquiry. Yeah. Um, you're creating a safe place for discussion, correct? If, uh, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. The, um, yeah, you mentioned in your, uh, essay that you've received some pushback on teaching philosophy at such a young age. Talk a little bit about that. What kind of pushback do you receive and, uh, What's your response to that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I directly talk about that in the essay that one of the like long-standing pushbacks against philosophy in general is it's viewed as being kind of a troublemaker. Hmm. And, you know, Plato actually addresses that in The Republic. There's a line that I always love about um, the, the dangers of exposing kids to philosophy too young, this idea that they become like puppies where they're just like ripping at everything that they, they, they get good at like being able to ask critical questions and then they're going to be like the, the concern of either they'd be these snots that they're going to go to other other classes and be like yeah oh yeah how do you know that like <laughs> de demanding an epistemological justification from their science teachers and you know historiographical justification from their history teachers um and there's a little bit of truth to that like definitely when i you know teach philosophy of science classes, those mm. students then go and then demand to know, like, you know, how do you know this? <laughs> Talk to me about the status of scientific law and these kinds of things. But I mean, I think, again, teachers that really enjoy teaching should love those moments. Mm. You can't always give class time over to them, but you know, if, if a student were to say to a math teacher, like, oh yeah, prove it, the math teacher should be happy to say, okay, I will, let me show you how I can prove it. Um, so that's that's one. I think that's less that these days the biggest concern um, is is its efficiency or mm. the lack thereof. Good philosophy is really inefficient. In fact, not, it's opposite of it efficient in as much as what it often will do is take questions that seem to have been settled and cause people to reopen things that like oh we already moved on from that question. It's already established, but we come to, and I, I think the real value of Socrates, again, this figure, always reminding people how important it is to unlearn things. And, you know, if you believe something that's false, it can harm you. It can yeah. devastatingly harm you. Um, problem is, in a testing regime, like, there can't really be a test about effective unlearning. Like, which things that you used to believe that are bad and false do you no longer believe you know, because of your schooling? Like, and so it's... Yeah. I think... So some of us who work in this field in trying to change the conversation around education, um, again, it's unlike in a lot of countries, it, it just seems very little likelihood that philosophy is going to become a standard class in mm. most schools' curriculum. Mm. But rethinking how we approach other classes. So again, an idea would be in a 
chemistry class to to have some moments where you're framing like the the picture of the world and allow them this the kind of the the, the moment of wonder of saying wow that's so freaky that's so amazing this idea that because when you frame it in that way it's easy to get excited about because we've all wondered those kinds of things um and then you know in biology classes to to raise the bioethics parts mm. um rather than just the facts of course it would mean fewer facts but if they're tied to interesting concepts not only is it more fun to learn tend to remember things more so i'll say it tends to stick more yes yeah but i mean those are i would say that's with philosophy in general with ethics interestingly like you know one of the most commonly said things that schools and people who work in schools are always saying is a desire to have you know be able to teach their students to be more moral, right? Mm. That, that it could be. That said, there's often a real pushback about ethics classes because the concern would be like, who's ethics? Which, right. which picture of what's right and what's wrong? And ethics has also traditionally had um, been inflected through religion. And so, you know, public schools, this idea of like, we can't even talk about any of this stuff. Because their approach often even in history classes is, you know, if it has to have church state separation, we just won't do any religious education at all. We'll just ignore these questions. Um, mm. And ethics questions are sometimes seen as, as tied to that. Um, I think it's a, it's a loss in that those are real concerns. However, there are areas where there's almost complete consensus where you can use to build interesting ethics discussions, something like, in a school, cheating. Schools all have moral codes where they suggest, you know, why is cheating wrong? It's an interesting question. Yeah. There was a moment in the Cultural Revolution in China where some of the students petitioned that it was somehow capitalist and counter-revolutionary, this idea that you give tests where everyone could only, like, you know, peer into their own soul for the answers, whereas they should be able to ask their everyone because the answers were communally owned. Um, <laughs> And that, so I mean, the idea is, yeah, yeah. Why, why, why cheating is bad? Because most yeah. kids don't think it necessarily is, but schools say it is, and so you can mm. dress codes and you know bullying, and there, there are lots of things that schools themselves take moral stances on, and so they're not morally neutral, even if I think it's schools should even you know be talking about abortion and capital punishment and things like that, not to again, provide a conclusion. That's not the role of a school. But one of the things that philosophy can do that's really useful is to give um, conceptual clarity. So the idea to help people understand. Right. So if you're going to have an atheist and a theist have an argument about God, can't have that conversation until you agree. Uh, what does that word mean? Once everyone agrees what the word means, then you can have an interesting conversation. And so I think that's a place where schools can be doing that kind of thing. Mm. It's, it's, you know, up to families and churches and communities and those kind of things to decide which of the possible answers is the right one. But, but schools can, should be in the business of clarifying. So that, you know, there's been this whole debate about, I think, ridiculous debate about critical race theory, for instance, um, which one of I was going to ask you. Yeah, go critical ahead. Race, yeah. Um, I actually teach a class. That has that in the title, um, 
this, which I found hilarious watching this debate. Yeah, I've been yeah. teaching it for like 15 years. But um, <laughs> one of the major things that that field does is hmm. just to try and understand what does what is race? What kind of a thing is it? You know, to to do conceptual clarity, and then once you do that, to figure out. If it's this kind of thing, these are some of the implications. If it's this other kind of thing, there'd be different implications. And, you know, again, the, the job of a good teacher with those kinds of topics isn't to say, here's the answer. You know, in the same way that, you know, in a, in a traditional ethics class, you wouldn't study a bunch of different perspectives. And, at, you know, the last class, have the teacher say, okay, so let me tell you now who was right and who was wrong. Right. That'd be, a, that'd be terrible teaching. And so, but you would ask them to be able to understand what the claims were, right? Yeah. And, and so critical race theory, that's largely what it's doing. It's, it's also asking us to rethink um, certain his, historical assumptions we make. Hmm. Um, but it's not a dogmatic field. Right. Again, I guess you could say, tied to the first concern about philosophy that I had said, really tragically, I think for some people, the, the, they would see the danger of philosophy with younger people in that it would cause them to become independent thinkers, which that's my goal for my students. But for some, some schools, they would see that as being terrible that they don't, you don't want people thinking for themselves. You want them to like do what they're told and yes. answer yes. the questions in the way that the test has designed them to. Yes. And so. I, I think that's um, such an interesting thing, you know, as, as we talk about this, that, uh, you know, what is the purpose of teaching, right? And what's the purpose of parenting? Uh, as you look at these things, um, I don't think that people are even that worried. Uh, often when I talk to parents, it's not that uh, these kind of questions, because um, we talked about race quite a bit. I taught American history as well. Um, I mean, you can't avoid it, right? <laughs> like it's going to come up. That's what they want to have happen now in a lot of these districts. <laughs> but, um, and what I found is the kids didn't even so much mind talking about it. There were a few kids perhaps, um, but really it's the parents who don't want to have these conversations with their kids. Yeah. Because they... it's uncomfortable because being faced with the truth, uh, whenever you're, and, and it doesn't even like, or just being asked hard questions is uncomfortable because mm -hmm. if you can't answer it or you come up with a different answer than you had before, then you are, there is that moral obligation to change. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's scary. Yeah. I usually start off courses by pointing out to the students that part of my job is to make them uncomfortable. There are different forms of discomfort. There's the yeah. kind of discomfort that causes you similar to like, you know, after you've exercised that causes you to grow and, and develop and become better. That's what I am. The, the just kind of discomfort that causes people to feel small and not heard and those kinds of things is not. Yes. Discomfort isn't always good, but it, yeah. but some amount, um, again, the idea of a community of inquiry, you start off by saying the premise here is that someone, if they've said something that's up for now discussion mm. and it's everyone else's job to say, well, I'm, I'm concerned about this one thing or like I, I disagree for these reasons. Yeah. And then the person has to then respond to say like, hmm, and actually hear what the reasons were. They don't have to change their mind. Right. But they, have, but it, they can't take personally the idea that we're now talking about an idea. And the idea has to be, if, if, if it's going to be worth holding, it should be worth investigating and 
being called into question. Um, and I Which think, is an important... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I, th I think in some schools, again, that's seen as being disrespectful. Hmm. Uh, it, it's interesting, you know, uh, as we talk about this, that even as you, you've been teaching critical race theory uh, as part of, uh, you know, you said it's part of the title, uh, but for post 15 years. Post-colonial studies is the other part of the title. Got you. Okay. <laughs> so pretty much, yeah, exactly what yeah. people are talking about. Um, and people don't even realize that uh, when we talk about ignorance and bias um, and prejudice, that one of the most important solutions to actually fixing our own blind spots is just the knowledge that comes with it, right? Like, um, yes, there are a multitude. So uh, for instance, if you have an anger problem or some other emotional problem, it, there, is, uh, there are different methods of dealing with that. But one of the most important things is just being able to recognize that one, you have the problem and just mm -hmm. the self-awareness will often mitigate that issue. And so if you talk about something like, uh, you know, what is race? Uh, it's a it's an enormous blind spot. Most people would have no idea how they would just point at specific examples. Right. Well, yeah. this person's white and this person's black. And it's an enormous blind spot where we aren't able to, to deal with the issues. Well, I think some one of the things that happens in that class that's useful is the postcolonial part means it's an international perspective yeah. because we have a tendency to kind of universalize and view as natural the way we conceive of race in our society. And it's viewed really differently in other places. And, in America? Yeah. That surprises me. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. <laughs> yes. um, and I think I also I teach a class in Greek philosophy and every now and then I wonder to myself, you know, is, what's the value of, of learning this? Mm. But, but having a time when you see the world through the lens of someone that in some ways shares so much with us, but in other ways it's so alien. It's a really important thing to see the world through totally different perspective. Mm. The most part, like the students at the end don't buy much of what Plato says, but they we read the Republic in this class, the whole book. And they after the first class, which they they, they hated right at first because it's hard to start, but then yeah. once they get a sense of what's going on, they found it they find it really powerful even though almost all of the major ideas they're like no way this is terrible yeah, like right right <laughs> but I, but it's terrible in a way that forces them to like think about you know so for instance like the term diversity is is presented as being universally good hmm. plato forces us to think are there some forms of diversity that aren't good hmm. so like diversity of like how morally good people are it's probably bad that's not something we want to aim for right um, I, I would like to bring yeah I, I would like to bring in more murderers into my society <laughs> to balance things out like maybe not um yeah confession time i have to admit i think i've read the republic three or four times and i've always stopped at the part where he has the long-winded argument about whether or not uh men and women should wrestle naked <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> every time yes. i'm just like i don't care like it's so hard like it's so hard for you to get through um it's i think i made it go ahead i was gonna say it's certainly the, the passage that when you're teaching a, a room full of teenagers <laughs> that sticks with them the whole idea of schooling being in naked yeah um, yeah oh i'm sure i'm sure yes <laughs> 
But, oh, but the part that's brilliant is that it's also the thing that the people that Socrates is talking to, they're also a bunch of teenagers, and they also can't get past that. He keeps trying to move on, and they're like, no, wait, let's talk more about naked school. <laughs> and, um, and so, I mean, it's, it's a good model because Socrates is doing philosophy with young, young people. Much mm. of his philosophy is with young people. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned this earlier, and I, I have to ask, and if, if you don't have an example off the top of your head, that's, that's fine. But you talked about allowing students to generate their own questions. Hmm. Is that something that you do? So I, I do, I would say when you're talking about pre-college philosophy, hmm. one of the first questions that determines what it's going to look like is whether or not it's a course that has to have an evaluation at the end of it, meaning a grade. Right. And right. so classes with grades look kind of different. So I teach a class in existentialism and you know, one in philosophy of science, philosophy of religion, those kinds of ones. Those, they have papers and tests, which means that, you know, in the philosophy of religion class, they need to be able to explain the, you know, cosmological proof or the ontological proof, those kinds mm. of things, which means there's a certain amount of content that they expect it to master, right? Right. And so it's, it's delivered in a more open way than, you know, I'm not just like throwing it at them, but I, I would be... A, that's not a kind of class in which I, I would tend to have them run because there is there are a certain number of topics that we need to cover by the end of the term, right? Whereas when I do the middle school philosophy, it doesn't have a grade. Mm. It's, it's purely just, you know, those are ones that the very first class, I, I ask them to generate. They have to each tell me something that they're really interested in that they don't, they'd, they'd be curious to talk about. And so, you know, it varies widely, but, you know, people ask questions about, you know, I'd say lately, a lot of questions about, you know, can you choose your emotions? Really? Mm. It's a big question in like stoic ethics and, you know, various things. So it's, so it's really important one. Um, some kids lately have been really interested in um, ethics and video games. So like, is there anything morally wrong with like killing people in a video game? Okay. You know? That's not where I thought that was going. Okay. Yeah. So you haven't harmed anyone, right? Right. But maybe you've harmed yourself. And so, you know, those, are, those can be really interesting. Yeah. They love questions about, um, so when I have them generate, I would say almost always one person in the class wants to talk about whether it's morally okay to eat animals. Yeah. Um, and so, but yeah, so the way it's often done with um, community of inquiry, philosophy with children type thing, is you'll generate a bunch of questions and then have them vote. And then you pick up the question that the most one of them wants to talk about. Mm. And then um, there are various models. Some, there are programs in the world where you can get like a special license to do kind of philosophical inquiry. Um, the, the, the model that um, Tom Wartenberg developed, he was using undergraduate students from a class that he designed. For the first half of the term, he would... Um, train them in a couple of key philosophical areas and then send them into elementary schools to run sessions with picture, picture books. Um, I sometimes have used high schoolers who have taken a bunch of philosophy as TAs. And, yeah. and I find that having a high school in the room with the middle schoolers is really great because it, it means that there's a more of a mix of age groups. Right. And, um, but 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And I, I'm glad you kind of mentioned you, you took that kind of detour because besides intentional disruption, uh, I'd, I'd like to, you know, I, I'm a digital marketer by day and uh, along with a homeschooling dad because I'm crazy. Um, I look at, uh, you know, I found you through your book, Intentional Disruption. Uh, I spent hours Googling and you and uh, normally I'm pretty good at Googling. Um, or probably an hour Googling, and I did not find much on teaching philosophy to young kids. What, if someone wants to understand this, someone wants to do this, what are the best, where are the best places to start? So I would say that the, one of the things to look at is that, well, I guess there are a couple of perspectives. One is that the earliest sources are the classical world. There was a lot more of it done there. You have um, dialogues that... Um, Augustine had with kids, oh. and you have Socrates talking with kids, um, and you you have versions of that in China and India also. So all the earliest written civilizations have versions of that. Um, that's not really necessarily where to start, mm. but um, in in this country, in the English speaking world, really there were there are two centers, I guess you could say. One was a literal center that um, in um, New Jersey that um, Walter Lippmann and Anne-Margaret Sharp um, started a program called the Institute for the Advancement for Children, I always forget exactly, Children and Philosophy. Yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. It's at Montrose State. And um, Matthew Lippmann in particular, he wrote a whole series of books that were, um, Harry Stottlemyre is the first one, that they were meant for kids of a particular age to be, read that to try and teach them the skills of philosophy, but there's stories about kids in school, which is like doing regular things, but they like end up talking to each other about, you know, Oh, how did you know that? You know? And so it comes a question about epistemology without ever using the word epistemology. Um, most of those books are out of print, but are soon going to be, there was a grant given. They're going to all be freely available online. Oh, um, awesome. Basically, their approach at that center was to do community of inquiry, kind of open-ended, but to have these lessons in which you're teaching philosophical skills. Um, my favorite approach is the one of um, Gareth Matthews. Um, he's the one that was the classicist, but one of the things that he did that I really like is that he, he was writing about um, philosophy with children, but also he started realizing that in order to conceive of this, we need a philosophy of childhood and really mm. understand what, is, what does childhood mean. And so he wrote some fascinating things about, for instance, the value of children's art. He wrote a really interesting article in that. Um, and he wrote at least two books that really are just kind of um, discussing dialogues he had with kids, largely to show professional philosophers how... It's not just cute, but they're actually getting to the heart of some of these. Like he would, he would use pieces of, of um, the tradition. So, for instance, the Ring of Gaiji story from the Republic. He tells a story about being with a bunch of seventh graders at a, um, an Orthodox Jewish school that they were studying the Leviticus. And he was asked to do a guest lecture, lecture so he, or not lecture, lesson. So he came in and had them do the Ring of Gaijis. So a question of like, why should you do the right thing? If 
if you know, no one can see you, if you can get away yeah. with the consequences and um, describes some insights that like he's more of a classicist than I am, but that his claim, at least as a time when he was writing that, that none of the people in the 2,500 years since that have been writing about the Republic had suggested mm. genuinely new insights that, that, um, so that's Gareth Matthews. He also for years did, um, in a journal that's not in existence anymore, but still available. It's called Thinking. But he had a, an, a monthly or quarterly, I don't remember how often it came out, but a book review of children's literature uh -huh. which to talk about. Um, and then um, a friend of mine, um, Wendy Turchin, just published a book on fairy tales. Basically, it's a guidebook for how you can take some of the classic fairy tales and turn them into really interesting philosophical discussions. It's, it's, it's designed for um, parents yeah. to be able to, to, to do that with their kids. How do you spell her last name, if you don't mind my asking? T-U-R-G-E-O-N. Oh, I was so close. I just I missed the, <laughs> the O. Awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. But I would say there's a lot of it going on, but yeah. it still doesn't get much attention. And I would mm. say even in, as I was mentioning before, in philosophy departments, a lot of philosophy departments, for instance, view that work with children as being um, service work and not scholarship, even if people are publishing scholarly papers about working yeah. with children and like the questions that come up, philosophy of childhood or questions about pedagogy and rethinking the meaning of the word philosophy and all of this. Um, that's slowly changing. Mm -hmm. And I think largely it's changing because philosophy departments are realizing that their days are numbered if they don't change how they do business. Yeah. So there's, there's also, it's being called public philosophy. So in, in to a large degree, working with, with kids outside the academy is often lumped in with that. But people who are trying to take philosophy into prisons and art galleries and parks and museums and change where it happens and, and who gets access to it. And so mm. um, there's the, the Brooklyn Public Philosophy Network hosts um, Ask a Philosopher booths, where literally <laughs> there's a table set up that has a bowl of candy and then a bowl of like um, thought experiments and a bowl of questions and people can just come up and it's really fun to do. When I first heard about it, I was kind of like, it, it sounded like it was the philosophers being in the role of the, the knowers, but it's yeah. much more a discussion where oh, people good. come up oh, and yeah. kind of like, yeah, what's on your mind? Or like, what are you thinking about? Or, or some of them will just pick up, read a few thought experiments and then one of them will inspire them. And, and so the conversations are just wildly diverse. Um, I, I think, so Ian Olasov, who runs most of those, his book is called Ask a Philosopher, um, which is a really great picture into like the experiences he's had at the Ask a Philosopher booth. Um, and awesome. then I, I mentioned one of the other big sources that I think a lot of teachers find useful is um, Tom Wartenberg's books, because he does a lot of the work of like explaining um, his, his main one on the, in the field is called like Big Ideas, Little Philosophers, something like that. But that um, the discussion about the ways in which you can 
you can take a picture book and turn it into a philosophy session. So it would be useful mm. for, for both teachers and parents. Yeah, I, and there's there's so much that you've mentioned there, even with um, uh, the Ask a Philosopher booth. I I feel like that's a whole another episode yeah. <laughs> dealing with the public uh, from a, even a professional standpoint, but uh, in philosophy, uh, obviously you teach a class on post-colonial uh, studies and uh, critical race theory, and uh, I realize this might be a contentious question, so don't feel any pressure to answer. Uh, do you feel, you know, you mentioned that they, they're feeling the pressure, uh, philosophy departments, mm -hmm. to expand the way they do things. Uh, even as you're mentioning uh, doing philosophy for younger kids, there's also this push, uh, you know, there, there are like how to be an anti-racist for kids, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. do, what would you categorize that as uh, kind of in that broader range of what might be called philosophy? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, for me, some of the most exciting contemporary philosophy is often of the sort that would be like philosophy of, so like philosophy of race or philosophy of gender, or philosophy of sex, um, in which trained philosophers are taking these kind of analytical skills that they developed. And this is what Dewey had always said philosophy is supposed to be doing and applying them to the contemporary social issues that, that we all I mean, clearly Americans can care a lot about race. Hmm. They don't know how to talk about it well. And every time some terrible thing happens, the first thing everyone's like, you know, maybe now is the time we can have this conversation, but it's, it's not going to happen until we learn how to, to conceive of like what, like starting at the beginning, like what is race and like yes. the, the history of it and some of these things. Hmm. Um, I would say philosophy came kind of late to the game at taking seriously equity and inclusion questions. Hmm. But but it is really taken seriously now at the professional level. And as a result, there's some great new work that's being done because part of it also had to do with what counts as scholarship that's worth like getting a tenured position for. And previously, something like a philosophy of race would have been considered to be like a marginal topic hmm. and not really universal in this kind of way. Um, but it turns out that, you know, for instance, the um, Charles Mills book on the um, it's about black rights, white wrongs, um, a really fascinating, for instance, is an example of this book where he's, he's investigating classical liberalism and showing the ways in which certain um, assumptions in classical liberalism were racist, that the kind of the, the universal subject was inflected with whiteness in these kinds of ways. But at the same time, he's trying to defend the, the project of classical liberalism and to make it not racist. And so mm. those kind of, of, of using some of these newer skills and kind of perspectives, but still applying them to some of the classical problems, um, it's, it's exciting. And I think yeah. if philosophy is going to continue, it has to do that because that's stuff that benefits everyone. Mm. When people are, are writing analysis of the kinds of questions that all of us need help on to understand as we're, we're for instance it's really exciting to teach um, younger people questions I taught a class in the fall that was called the ethics of embodiment 
And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to wade into all the controversial things. And so we talked about race, sex, gender, sexual orientation, and then uh, disability. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, especially when we were talking about gender, so fascinating because the kids now, they live in a world in which that means something so different. The, the general social things that are happening, the debate is very different for them. They've accepted certain things that older people are, are just now trying to kind of come to terms with and don't really understand. And often because they don't know how to talk about them, I think causes them to be unwilling to engage with the, the topics. Um, and very excitingly, actually, through Plato, we have a student advisory um, council, I think. Yeah. So there are I think six or seven students from across the country who um, were trying to get more and more opportunities for them to be content deliverers rather than have people talk about mm. young people. To have. And so in mid-February, they're going to be hosting a webinar on the philosophy of gender in which they're giving kind of gen- Generation Z's perspectives on the changing understanding of gender. Um, I'm very excited about that because yeah. their audience will be largely professional philosophers. It's hosted by the American Philosophical Association, um, but it will be, they're the ones that are going to be doing the talking. What a um, fascinating idea. Yeah, is that something that's publicly available or, or only it for... It will be. Most of the APA webinars, you have to be a member, but they're, they're going to allow that one to be publicly available. Um, and so I'll be publishing, publicizing that widely. Yeah, interesting. Um, so... It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, kind of as we draw to a close here, uh, is there what's the one thing that you would leave our audience with? I would say the, the things that matter to me most in this field is, well, first of all, the long-term goal is having us rethink what we think of as, as a good education. Mm. Um, I think as a country, we've made some bad moves that have to be changed. Um, and the reason is that not only from a pragmatic standpoint, but from a moral standpoint. So all the research shows that barraging kids with information means that they can learn it for a test, but then they don't remember it. Right. So it's, there's no use to that. Um, that said, it's also morally bad to force them to be in a situation where they're essentially made to memorize things, but not given context for why they should care about it, mm. what, what role it would play in, in, in their lives. Whereas when you change the perspective, the frame in which you present it to them, they're able to see, you know, so for instance, a lot of science classes, if they were framed from the standpoint of how can our community solve these problems rather than memorize these facts, they, they care about the kid. Kids are misrepresented frequently when they're presented as being kind of like addicts on their phones and not really caring about things. The mm. moment you, you allow them a chance to kind of weigh in on stuff that matters, they love it. Um, and tied to that, um, there's a, it's a situation of epistemic injustice that I think that really matters a lot, that children are systematically denied the status of being knowers Mm. and it diminishes their humanity to be constantly in a situation um, in which their testimony doesn't count. 
their perspective doesn't count. Their how they see things doesn't count, and it it has a devastating effect. And I think by, by a certain age means that kids start to kind of even if they do the work to like not really buy into the project anymore. Mm. They're kind of disempowered from being part of the community of knowers. Um, that matters to me a lot. Yeah. That, that the more children's testimony can be not only heard, but taken seriously. It's, it does them. They, they, that is a right, I think. Well, that is a tremendous point to end on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. This has been really great. It's nice talking to you.